Blog Talk Radio. And welcome to Speaking of Green. I am your hostess, Beth Bond, and we have a special edition of Speaking of Green this morning. We are speaking to Atlanta mayoral candidate Kathy Woolard, who I have known for a very long time. She was actually my city council person when I lived in actual city limits. And um, Kathy has been well known and doing a lot of great work um, in the metro area and actually internationally also for a long time. But most importantly, I think it's important for Atlanta voters to know that she has a great record on sustainability. When she was on city council, she worked with South Face for the first energy efficiency standard. Um, she's really, I mean, that's not the sole reason because no one does anything by themselves, but Kathy was the champion of the Beltline with the city council at its inauguration and um, has done so many other things that I'm just going to let her tell us some of her sustainability um, achievements, and then we'll get into the conversation. Welcome, Kathy. Hey, Beth, thank you. I really appreciate that, and I'm so excited about this because uh, oftentimes people don't really realize how uh, much I consider myself an environmentalist um, and, and, and even practice in my personal life. But, you know, my, my first job when I was 14 was working at my neighborhood recycling center. It's before we had, you know, house pickup uh, and you had to take it to a place like charm. And so I um, did that and I've kind of never looked back. I've recycled my entire life. Um, I uh, have been regional director for league of conservation voters earlier in my career. I worked really hard here in the region to um, help uh, uh, environmental organizations use their political clout to hold elected officials accountable I loved that job, working on issues that I was really excited about. When I was on the city council, South Face Energy Institute came to me and said, hey, if we help you uh, with an intern, would you start an energy conservation program at the city? And I leapt at the chance, and a great guy named Cyrus Bedwar was assigned to me for, I guess it was about a year. I don't remember exactly how long. Um, but we started an energy conservation program introduced legislation to require all city buildings to be LEED certified. Uh, and remember, this was 20 years ago, so people weren't as, uh, as uh, understanding of what that meant at the time. We also started an energy replacement, uh, energy equipment replacement program so that we could use the savings from updating equipment, uh, energy equipment with, you know, more um, efficient things and use that savings to buy more. And um, saved the city about $800,000 just the first year by auditing energy bills and uh, replacing a couple of really bad pieces of equipment that gave us enormous savings. And then um, I also, as many people know, thought that we should orient our city around a permanent transit infrastructure and worked for years with Ryan Gravel to make the Beltline happen you know, it was named a number of years ago the best environmental reclamation project in the world. I'm enormously proud of that accomplishment. And then personally, uh, you know, we compost. We're recyclers. We take our glass uh, to facilities that will recycle glass. 
I've been a vegetarian for 40 years, uh, and um, and I ride a bike, and I'm the lobbyist for Georgia Bikes, among others. So I really have dedicated my life to making sure that what, what I can do personally and what I can do professionally uh, to preserve the environment, um, I'll do it. Oh, and I forgot to say I'm also a long-distance backpacker, and getting off the grid and um, leaving no trace is really important to me, and I, I do that uh, as regularly as I can. Campaigns accepted. <laughs> well, yeah, you're long distance backpacking now, but in a different way. So, well, exactly. I, yeah. Right, and I think it's those small personal choices that you know, you know, you know, we don't talk about, but they do really add up um, and make a difference. So, thank you. I should, I, I just have to do this because I always um, love the fact that we were both Peace Corps volunteers, and I think that once you do Peace Corps, that your mindset. Um, you know, it may not have had the fun term sustainability or going green, but once you've done that and you understand the impact um, we have on the planet, you just naturally gravitate towards, you know, having a wider footprint. That's right. And, you know, I I was a, a Peace Corps volunteer in Micronesia, uh, very, very small islands out in the Pacific, and, and some of the islands uh, that were coral atolls probably have even disappeared by now as a, as a result of climate change and, and rising waters. And if they haven't, they're, they're probably getting close to be uninhabitable. And I think about, the, you know, the people who lived on these little small specks out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean who, you know, are going to get, if they're not devastated by, you know, hurricanes and typhoons, typhoons out in the Pacific, um, you know, their, their, uh, their land mass is getting smaller and smaller. Well, and, and um, you know, I've been doing a lot of work in faith-based communities about that, and you're absolutely right. It's, it's, it's terrifying to think, but you, you're absolutely right. Those islands are probably gone, um, and it's, it's just tragic. And, and I think the thing that's so frustrating for people is um, they just don't understand how much waste there was in the system, you know, and, like, if we could solve that's the right. waste issues in every system we have, then it wouldn't be an issue, you know. But yesterday I was at the uh, climate conference for the Chattahoochee Riverkeeper, and basically if Georgia would replace 20% of the toilets with low-flush toilets, we would need no more new reservoirs. So, and that's a great segue into sort of the vision, right? Atlanta has mm-hmm. a very, very good reputation as a leader in regards to sustainability and resiliency and so I really wanted to give you the opportunity today to sort of share with us what your vision is if you become mayor moving forward to build on the legacy that is there, but to really shoot us into um, the future in regards to Atlanta's uh, commitment to sustainability and resiliency. Well, I'm, I'm so glad you asked. You know, um, the energy conservation program that we started at City Hall led Mayor Shirley Franklin to expanding that after I left uh, into the first sustainability program and, and, and made it even broader. And now Mayor Kasim Reed has, it has kind of blown the roof off of it. And so um, I feel glad that I was able to help start the conversation at City Hall about what we can do as a municipality and just am looking forward you know, to being mayor so that I can take it to even higher levels. Because as you said, just, you know, just kind of ratcheting down the waste, uh, we can go a long way and make, you know, and and make significant changes across our system uh, that will make an enormous difference ultimately. Um, You know, 
I'm committed to looking at every single thing we do through the lens of equity and sustainability. Uh, it's not that hard to do. It's, it's really just a mindset about, you know, what can you do to, to make a change to, you know, um, you know, just for the, for example, of low flow faucets, you know, and, um, and toilets and, and shower heads and things, you know, we can, we don't invest enough money in helping low income people and in seniors, uh, keep up the maintenance of their homes and and we've got to keep an affordable city we want to do more of that so i'm committed to having you know investing more money in helping citizens retrofit their homes and and that can also translate into jobs um and and getting people to work uh helping do this um when i was at city hall one of the things we did do was distribute low flow devices for people and and help explain to them you know door to door what they could what they could do and the savings that it could provide for them. So it's a it's a win win for everybody, and it's just worth the effort. Well, and and the so the other thing they brought up at the conferences is you know we only do things when there's a drought kind of thing, but actually through um, multiple uh, efforts that you know started with the drought but quietly continues behind the scenes, um, we have reduced um, our water uh, usage in this. I don't know in the city, but we're talking about metro region. Um, and, of course, the city is the largest player in that. But I think they said um, 10%, um, which when you think about how much we've grown <laughs> since the drought, um, that's, like, really impressive. So, um, yeah. you know, those kinds of strategies are so important. And I do I do know that um, if the city is doing – I remember when we all started, I remember, like, going to events and they were handing out low-flow showers. Um, and – uh, shower heads, and you know, you know, it, it, it doesn't stop, right? And I agree that affordability for um, low income and our seniors is sometimes ignored, and that you know, giving them opportunities to save money while helping the city save water um, is a, an easy sort of no-brainer, right? Yeah, it is, and and you know, that's just you know one small example of things that we can do. The the big picture that we have to keep our eye on is climate change. You know, the the Hurricane Harvey and Irma and what's just happened in Puerto Rico, are you know are are just a signal of things to come. We've seen this building year after year after year during hurricane season. You know, and the cost to our society to to rebuild and not to mention the personal cost of people who are impacted you know, should make anyone take this seriously. I've taken it seriously my as long as I've heard the the warnings about climate change. Um and I just think we have an enormous responsibility as as a, a city and certainly for me as a political leader to help us make changes in our lives that will sustain us into the future. I mean we we have no bigger mandate than that, quite frankly. And I, you know, and, it, it, and it, I'm sure you're going to touch on this, but it really starts with transportation. You know, getting people out of cars and building communities that are walkable. You know, installing bike lanes so that people can ride their bikes to where they need to go, or or making sure that we have the last mile in transit uh, is is critical because people are ready to get out of their cars. They just don't have options of how to get where they're going. Um, you know, unless you're young and fit or fit and old, uh, you know, and you can ride your bike, you know, for long distances safely. Um, so uh, to me, putting down 
five lines of transit as quickly as possible and starting to orient density and building communities that have the amenities everyone needs within a walking distance is, is, is probably the biggest impact we can have, um, you know, on, on both our city and our goals, but also, um, you know, moving the dial on how we live and on sustainability. And it'll help air quality, well, it'll help water quality and everything else. And quality of life, right? I mean, in yes. the end, that's what all this is about is quality of life. And um, and that's so important for Atlanta when we're recruiting companies to come in. So can we unpack that five lines of transit a little bit more and explain yes. what that would look like? Yeah, so the um, the city council and the Federal Transportation Administration have already approved five lines of transit, and that's um, along the Beltline, Extending the streetcar. I, I wasn't a proponent of the streetcar originally. I never had any demonstrated ridership, and I'm really sorry that's the first project we started with. Um, but, but nevertheless, we got to make it work. It's here now, and you don't throw $100 million out the window. Um, North Avenue, Joseph Boone, Northside Drive, all of those will connect into the Beltline and or MARTA. And, and then from there, that's when we tackle the last mile. So that's when we improve sidewalks coming out of neighborhoods into those corridors, that we make sure that we've got bike lanes, you know, into those corridors so that people can, you know, can actually, you know, walk on a good sidewalk, hit a transit system that's not on the belt, you know, that's not in traffic, and then connect to, uh, you know, MARTA going out even further into the region. Um, and, and that's not the only thing we need to do about transportation. I mean, I, there's just massive work we need to do in this regard. And, and the good news is, is regional leaders are finally getting that they're under investment or their their non-investment in um, in regional transportation is is gonna is coming back to bite them now. Well, and I know that um, Dallas, like you know, when Texas beats us on something, it's always like, well, gosh, if they get it in Texas, right? I mean, how no come kidding. we can't? in Atlanta. Um, so t- I just, I'm just curious. So you're talking about these spurs. Are, is it light rail? Is it more trolleys? What What does it look like? Yeah, it'll be it'll be more like streetcar. But I, you know, I frankly okay. think the streetcar is pretty old technology. I I would not pursue uh, streetcar technology that uses overhead wires. Probably try to see if there's a way we can get a somewhat sleeker streetcar. That one that we have is is kind of a behemoth, um, and um, there's there's magnet technology out there. There's other kinds of things that we can use that's cheaper. We can install it faster, and we and we can still use the same um, uh, the, the same rails that the streetcar is on uh, to to make that connectivity. And then you know people often ask about the bus line. You know, like well, why don't you just do bus rapid transit or something like that? But the corridor that's available for us to put transit on the belt line. It's very, very narrow, and so we have to use fixed rail so that, um, frankly, if we have a two-way system, which is we have to have a two-way system, uh, they won't run into each other. So, um, you know, that's that's pretty much what we have to do there because of the of the width that's available to us. Well, and um, this is, I mean, the Beltline has become so desirable, and um, I want to sort of switch into – I mean, I love that vision. I'm waiting for that vision vision of, the, you know, actual transportation on the Beltline. But let's talk a little bit about the equity piece because sure. Um, sure. for anybody who's been following it, um, you know, it's ended up being a little bit of uh, 
a, a challenge and a lot of sort of angst over the fact that, you know, the Beltline came in and was supposed to have all this equitable um, positioning in regards to housing and everything, and it sort of feels like a new place for the, you know, the wealthy to live in Atlanta. How are you going to tackle that when you become mayor? Well, we have to tackle it, uh, you know, and, and it's it's such a conundrum because what we're seeing here in, in Atlanta in particular is that anywhere you have housing around a MARTA station or any transportation that gets people out of cars, it leads to an escalation in property values because people just can't get anywhere. So, you know, we just have to set that as a framework, but that's not a reason not to build transit. What we have to do then is address the problem head on, and that includes prioritizing very affordable housing in the in the vicinity of trans, all of the transportation projects. And I'm talking, you know, 50% um, AMI or lower because the demand um, right now is is for those people who have no options whatsoever of where they might move as as uh, you know housing prices escalate. Second right. thing we have to well, do. Well, DC had the same thing. You know, Georgetown said we don't want the you know we don't want the metro. It'll devalue properties, and of course now Georgetown is like this island sitting out in the middle of nowhere. Um, right. And and so I think the model's been proven that if you not to use an overused cliche, but I will. You know, if you build it, they will come and and actually and and actually love it. Right, love the fact that they don't have to be in the cars. Um, I, 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 you and I were both at that um, the Blank Foundation and Central Atlanta Progress hosted that housing forum, and mm-hmm. um, that's right. Got to hear from leaders from you know Seattle and Miami um, and uh, uh, Texas. Do you think those strategies we heard, so just for our audience, a couple of them were like, you know, everybody who builds has got to set aside a certain percentage of a building for uh, workforce housing. Do you think those are strategies that we can use here in Atlanta, or or do you have a different vision that that will work? Well, so, you know, cities in Georgia are somewhat limited in what we can do because we we sort of govern by permission of the state, if you will. And so one of the things that is difficult for us is is inclusionary housing policies that require developers to do things without incentive. So we we can and will have inclusionary zoning policies, but we have to pay for them. Um, and so there's a, that conundrum. So so we'll just hold that for aside for a minute. Where I think we get some great value is in land trust and and owning land perpetually, you know, and and letting people build on it with the with the guarantee that the price of uh, of the property as it changes hands stays um, stays affordable. Because you know, having we're getting ready to have I forgot the number now. 20,000 units that are going to roll off of the Section 8 rolls, that's going to be about as devastating as anything that could happen here. Uh, and it's not because anybody's doing anything nefarious. It's just they all came on at the start of the program, and, and now that program's expiring. So so we've got a, a lot of ways that we need to address this. But the Atlanta Housing Authority owns, I think, over 400 acres of land. The APS owns I don't I don't know how much but you know lots and lots of vacant schools that the city holds the deeds to so we can work on that 
And, you know, I'm really sorry that the mayor and this council have allowed the sale of Turner Field, Fort McPherson, you know, now the Civic Center and previously Underground, without using those as places to um, hold that land and build affordably in really critical areas. And, and, and also with the Beltline. The Beltline doesn't own a ton of land that's wider than that 75-foot foot corridor that we need to do the basics. But where we do have it, we don't have to sell it. We don't have to sell it at all. We can hold it and, and build what we need there. And, and, and that would be my philosophy, not just, you know, here, sell it to the highest bidder, go have fun and, you know, build a few moderately priced units uh, you know, on top of that, I think we have to use that to really shoehorn the affordability we need into places where we know the value is going to escalate rapidly. Yeah, I think that's that sounds really good. All right, we're going to switch <laughs> to. I've got two more topics I want to cover before um, we have to buzz off. Um, yeah. One is, is we, and we talked. I was at an event um, that um, you were at um, answering questions and. Um, we talked about the 100% renewable energy mm-hmm. goal, and I think it's 2030, right, for the city? Yeah. So, um, you know, so my crowd loves, uh, um, not that I have ownership of them, but, you know, we love the whole idea of the 100% renewable energy. But yeah. um, we need to sort of we need to sort of discuss the reality of that. So why right. don't we start off with, like, what you think is is – good about that idea and what you think is bad about that idea well i don't think that there's anything bad about the idea um what i think is great about the idea is that it sets a goal very very clearly about where we want to try to get the challenge is how much is it going to cost and i frankly don't have the answer to it but to to convert everything into renewables you know uh, residential commercial you know, city-owned properties, you know, government-owned properties. Um, it's going to be an expensive proposition, especially in a state where, you know, we have a public utility that's not helping a lot. Um, so so my goal will be to set the, the kind of benchmark. Well, first my goal is going to be, you know, if, if we could do it by 2030, how much would it cost and what would it take? And I think the big pictures of what it would take are are really changing you know legislatively at the state and at the city level you know uh, you know the requirements for producing and 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 buying renewables and you know other things that I probably don't even have the policies uh, in my head yet but but we're going to have to set the big picture framework and start kind of moving things in a in a in a large scale manner you know, but then you know, getting getting down to the granular level of, you know, how do we help people install solar? How do we um, create you know small hubs of energy uh, um, production and 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 things like that that will help get us there? And you know, as we're thinking about housing affordability and you know embarking on a, a lot of investment, um, it's a perfect place to be innovative about energy production, water use, water stormwater reclamation. I mean, we, we need to be really, really aggressive, not just looking at what other cities are doing here and around the country, but, you know, working with our universities and, and trying to understand what, what they've got going on that could lend us uh, some, some support in this area. 
Well, I'm excited by it. I, I mean, I accept the challenge, to be perfectly frank. I, I think it's a difficult one. I don't want to – I always try to tell people the truth and not just say, yeah, I'm going to get that done. But, I mean, I will, if I'm lucky, I'll be mayor and can be there for eight years and get things moving in the right direction. So I won't achieve it in one mayor's term. But I bet we can move the dial quite a lot, particularly at the early stages. Well, um, I absolutely agree. There's plenty of room to move. Um, I do think uh, that um, it's important for people to know that um, solar um, in particular, you know, is probably the best strategy for most of Atlanta, um, is really on par uh, with utility rates unless um, they're receiving a discount. I mean, you know, the biggest users get a discount. The question is, um, and that is a, a model by our, our, you know, our local utility that makes sense. But at some point, you have to start asking: Are um, the biggest payers paying their fair share? Um, for example, um, many people do not know that the um, the the fee that everyone's paying for Vogel does not apply to the corporations in Atlanta. And so, you know, people talk about, well, you know, it's it's expensive to go solar. And I'm like, but we're not looking at the real cost of things. And I think yeah. it's important for us to change that conversation and like, well, you know, when you start looking about, you know, as paying for a, a failed bankrupt system and we're now talking about paying another four years for it um, and start adding those costs and then realizing that our largest corporate citizens, who we love and need in Atlanta, but I think from an equity standpoint, need to either share the share the load with everybody else, or um, you know realize that if if they're not paying their share of Vogel, then we should be doing things rapidly to get disengaged. Because the one thing we know is is the less electricity you buy, the less you're paying for Vogel. And um, since we unfortunately don't seem to have state officials who are concerned about the burden that has been placed on um, the citizens and ratepayers and voters. Um, okay, I'm going to get off my soapbox. But anyway, I, I think that's part it's of the a, conversation. It's a good soapbox. <laughs> I don't mind you spending oh. time on that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, no, don't get me started, Kathy. So, great. Well, I am thrilled that um, we'll, you know, um, if you become mayor, that we will be having some very interesting conversations about it. Um and um, so the other thing is, and this is one of the things I'm hearing a lot out um, as I move in my circles, is uh, the Department of Resiliency, which, you know, we're mm-hmm. so blessed and honored to have. Um, mm-hmm. And so, but, you know, there's also, there's always things we can prove on. There's always new vision that can be added to uh, the work. And so what what is your take on that? Well, you know, I want to get in there and, and sort of see how things have been operating and, and what the level of investment has been and, you know, and also what the level of accomplishment has been. It's one thing to have plans. It's another thing entirely to actually move the dial. And so, you know, that's what I want to look at and see what we're doing. You know, we talk about the, the department, we talk a lot about energy usage, um, but we don't talk a lot about water and I think we've got, you know, a lot of room to go in terms of providing clean water, uh, but also monetizing our um, our wastewater, right? We we uh, could be selling phosphorus and, and nitrogen and, and, you know, trying to make a little money on that and offset the expenses while, you know, removing things from 
um, our water system. Um, we don't have that I've been able to tell any kind of uh, large-scale education and reclamation of pharmaceuticals so that people aren't dumping medicines into the toilet or into the sink, and then it ends up in the water system. And Lord only knows what it is we're all drinking. Um, so I think it, I think that we've got that. We've got stormwater management that we haven't really addressed in a significant way. And, you know, there's even some um, – uh, wastewater systems around the country that are using uh, sewer thermal heat because the wastewater treatment facilities, you know, what's going on in there is usually at about 55 degrees pretty consistently. And so w we could be thinking about how to power our wastewater facilities right off of the heat that gets generated within them. We don't have any, uh, you know, true methane capture that I see in our uh, landfills. number of cities have... Um, you know, glass blowing and, and pottery, uh, you know, facilities. And we talk a lot about investing in the arts. I think it would be so cool if we're, you know, tapping into to methane and, and turning it into something the whole community can use to, to create art and, um, and, and power those facilities. So, you know, it's, it's really endless the kinds of things we can do as we're growing, but we have to have a systematic approach to, to what that looks like. And again, as we think about building out four or five, a thousand acres of property into mixed income housing and commercial and retail, we have to think about it holistically. How do we make those developments, you know, the most sustainable developments in the country that people will be looking at Atlanta going, oh my God, I can't believe you put a water hub, you know, in a, in a public housing facility. You know, I mean, it's those kinds of things that we ought to be really reaching for and, and the payoff for us will, will, you know, pay off in generations to come. Right. And I think that's the other challenge we have, right, is, you know, everybody wants to be mayor, but excluding you vision long-term, you know, has not really been addressed, I think. I mean, I, that's one of the things I keep on hearing is like, well, I want to be mayor, and, and we're going to talk about sort of these big things, but no one's talking about the specifics, right, about, like, you know, well, these are my right. priorities. Well, you, so I really appreciate yeah. you coming on with us today. Well, thank you. And, and you know, it's hard because we do, we've done probably 50 forums, but we get to answer things in a minute. Um, and, and so it's really hard to have a time to have an in-depth conversation about what you could do. But what I would implore people to think about is who's really done stuff. It's one thing to introduce legislation that has a cool title, uh, but no responsibility for fulfilling it. Uh, it's another thing to make the Atlanta Beltline happen and change how we live or to have a lifetime, you know, 40 years as a vegetarian because I'm deeply committed to, you know, reducing, um, you know, the load that it takes to produce meat uh, for people. You know, I mean, there's just – it's a it's a different quality of commitment when you've devoted your life to living that way versus you know hey I can get some political points by introducing a, a couple pieces of legislation that either don't have impact or I'm not responsible for. Well, and and why that means we need smart governance, and unfortunately, a lot of times, I just feel like, and and this is probably a little esoteric, but I feel like so many politicians today are really more about I want to serve because I, I want to have that clout, 
that I'm an elected official instead of I want to serve because I really want to bring quality of life and serve the, the actual citizens of the location I'm serving. Well, that's why I got back in. You know, I didn't really think I was going to run again. I didn't, you know, I mean, I, I just, I mean, I would have loved to do it. I enjoyed my time. Um, but, I, you know, I left the, I've left the role of city council to go to Congress to get transportation money for the Beltline. I had taken the project as long as far as I could take it, given my role, and, um, you know, thought, look, we don't have a transportation uh, advocate in Congress. Um, we've got now one person on the transportation committee, but I wouldn't call him an advocate. Um, and, you know, that's what I wanted to do. And I was willing to risk my political career to to make that happen. And I think it was worth it. Um, and now I'm getting back in because I think we're at a place in time where the, the work personally and, and, you know, as an elected official in social justice and infrastructure development um, makes me the right person for that. And I like to get things done. I'm not running for office because there's another office behind that. I'm running for office now because I think this is an exciting time an extraordinary time to help figure out how we grow this city in a sustainable way in the broadest sense so that everyone who wants to live here can live here and thrive, but that we're also leading the world in terms of our efforts around sustainability and equity. And I, I think we can do it, and I'm totally committed to it. Great. Kathy, you have a very busy woman running for a very busy I mean, a very important position, and so we are very honored that you took the time with us to speak with us today. Um, we really, really appreciate it, and we just want to, you know, wish everyone best of luck, but hope hope um, you have a great campaign season, and we'll see what happens in November. Great. Thanks, Beth. I mean, I'm, this is an exciting time, and I, I hope I get the job because I want to get started as quickly as I can. Right. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Yay. So have a have a, a, a great uh weekend and um thank you so much for your time. Sure, thanks Beth. I appreciate the opportunity. Uh-huh. Bye. Bye bye. Wow. Okay. So I wanna be very clear to um all my listeners. Um Kathy's campaign contacted me um about being on and of course we welcome all uh candidates and so if you have a candidate is running for mayor and they want to be on Speaking of Green, please reach out to me and we will try to get them on um, as soon as possible. So I I just want you to know there's not bias. But I do think it's um, very interesting that um, out of um, all the candidates that that Kathy really wanted to take the time with us because, look, they're slammed. I mean, they've got a debate almost every single day, I think, that Kathy was willing to take time out of her schedule not to have like a five-minute soundbite conversation or a quick, you know, 15-minute chat, but to sink in deep on these issues that are so important to those of us in the Atlanta community. So we cannot thank her enough for her time and um, be, you know, willing to answer sort of the hard questions in regards to like, okay, this may be a good idea, but how do we approach it? And um, really appreciate that opportunity. So we... um, We'll look forward to our, our next episode. I've got some folks I've got to line up. We got sort of off track um, in September because of, you know, hurricane season that all packed in in three weeks. So um, looking forward to having more conversations. I want to thank you all so much and appreciate you all as listeners and um, would really appreciate um, if you hear this episode to give it a like on iTunes or 
share it through your social media networks. And um, we will talk to you the next time we're on Speaking of Green. Um, Once again, my name is Beth Bond. I'm curator of sustainable news at Southeast Green. And we are signing out with DJ Lang and his song, Water Drop.